I probably just need to qualify again. My voice is not what it should be, so I apologize if it sounds gross or strained, but I also have to push a little bit to get it out, get the words out, so I may be a little bit loud as well. Pray that God might bless this to us. Father, we come as dependent people upon your will, upon your spirit, your power, and your graces to us. This morning we are here for the purpose of worshiping you, expressing our deepest gratitude for the salvation and the sanctification that we enjoy in Christ Jesus. So Father, by your Spirit, would you be our teacher this morning? Intercede on my behalf that I can speak well enough to be understood and brought closer into the image of your precious Son. We desire for some good sanctifying work. We desire, Father, that your word be heard by those here that are yet without Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. Philippians chapter 3, and I'd like to read again the first three verses of Philippians 3. <clears throat> beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as law value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. And may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. <clears throat> Formed to his death, in order that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. This passage, and continuing on into verse 14, and you can scan ahead where Paul is going, these again are verses that become some of the most well-known passages in the New Testament Scripture, certainly some of the most loved, especially as you get down into verse 13 and 14. Paul expressing what he has become in Christ because of the Spirit, compares that with what he was before. And in describing what he was before, Paul was attempting to make the argument that man can put no confidence in their own righteousness, in their own works, in their own endeavors, their own passions, their own goals, their own zeals and devotion, whatever they think they have that is righteous before God, Paul is showing, I had more. I was more exemplary. And I've come to realize through all of that means nothing. And Christ means everything. And you see the transition of his argument right there in verse 7. And that's why last week we stopped at verse 6, even though verse 7 continues on in this argument because a transition has taken place. And if we're careful with verse 7, we can see Acts chapter 9 right there. A transformation, a regeneration has taken place such that he can look back at the entirety of his life in devotion to God and he can declare nothing. It's nothing but loss. And it's a loss because I value, I've gained Christ. All the more is he precious to me. 
I want to suggest to you what I believe is dominating the, the passage that we're going into, and that is that Paul is describing the Christian's identity. He's describing every believer's identity. If you're here in Christ by faith, he's describing what you and I should be and what you and I should value. And this has practical implications. And so I've titled verse 7 to verse 11, the value of knowing Christ. These are not my words. Those are Paul's words. The value of knowing Christ. And I don't care what path or what part of your spiritual journey you are on this morning. Every one of us struggles in some measure with what Paul is writing here. And bear in mind, he's writing out of the joy, the gospel joy that is on his heart. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. And Paul wants nothing to do with what he was before. That much is clear. The seventh verse marks a significant transition in Paul's autobiographical sketch. This, this personal testimony that he had before he came to Christ, where he saw his righteousness as so exceptional that God could not possibly refuse him. He most certainly was one of the chosen, one of God's people. Certainly God would take delight in such a specimen. But Paul came to realize on that Damascus highway it was not enough. If anything, it kept him back from God. It held him away from God. This righteousness, this zeal, his practical living as wonderful as it may have seen in the eyes of men, it was unfit for God. When Paul came to that realization in a most wonderful and dramatic way, as Christ met him face to face on the Damascus Road. <clears throat> the context of chapter 3 to this point has been a clear defense of the gospel. Remember, Judaizers had come into the churches and they were attempting to convince people that to believe in Christ and be saved by Christ, by faith, you have to add the works of the law. You have to get circumcised, the, the festivals, the holidays. You must become Jewish if you want to truly be saved. They acknowledge Christ as the Messiah. They acknowledge faith in Christ as the means of salvation, providing you added to that faith the works of the law. And as Paul so clearly said in Galatians, that's no gospel at all. That's a fabrication. And he's telling the Philippian church the same thing that he told to the Galatians. Don't buy into this. It will lead you no place but to hell itself. This is not the gospel. Rather, the gospel is found by faith alone in Christ alone, apart from the works of man. And I want you to notice that within this discussion of salvation or justification by faith alone, Paul is not only talking about how we're saved, he's also going to discuss how we live now that we are saved. Justification as well as sanctification are in our text this morning. And that's a very important part of how we must study out these verses before us. Much is being made today in our culture, especially with the younger generation, about being me. I just want to be me. This is who I am. Accept me for who I am. And we see that all over in the culture around us. I do this. I dress this way. I become this person because this is me. After all, God made me this way, some claim. And sadly, the church too often is buying into it. 
This is an issue of self-identity. And for the Christian here this morning, we need to understand that our self-identity is not marked by the world around us. It is not marked by my own desires. It's not marked by my own view of righteousness. If we're a believer, our identity should be Christ. That's our identity. You want to promote something? Promote that. This is what Paul is teaching us. And I believe that every one of us, whether older or younger generation this morning, needs to embrace what Paul is teaching because he's showing us this is what it means as a Christian to have a true identity in Christ. And this is the secret. It isn't found in your righteousness, your philosophies, your views, what you're embracing from the world. It is found in Christ and Christ alone. To justify one's acceptance of this pseudo-path of discovering self-identity, often Christians will go to the freedoms in Christ and the liberties in Christ argument. Well, I can be this way, I can do this, because I have liberties in Christ, I have freedoms in Christ. And again, this is a topic that is so badly abused because our freedom in Christ is that we've been set free, we're at liberty from the bondage of sin. And we've now been chained to the righteousness of Christ. Again, our identity is Christ. And for the believer that truly embraces the gospel message, like Paul, they come to understand that we have a new identity and it's not found in me. It's not found in my desires or passions. It's found in this person, Jesus Christ. And this is very much the heart of of Paul, who is passionately communicating this message from verse 4 all the way to verse 14. He's devoted his life to the pursuit of his own personal achievements. He was thoroughly satisfied in the righteousness that he had created for himself until that is, he met Jesus face to face on Damascus Road. He wanted the church in Philippi to see the dramatic change that took place in regard to his former identity and now his new found purpose in life. Paul not only addresses here our sanctification, but our justification. Both of these are real topics for us to press upon our own souls this morning. And it begins in verse 7 and 8 with the understanding that if we're going to have truly the identity of Christ within ourselves, we've got to lose self. We've got to get rid of the old person. Paul is making this clear. The old person meant nothing any longer. It is time to lose self. And I say this especially as a Christian that was raised up in a Christian home because I tended to look at the gospel in the past and maybe even some degree in the present. That I wasn't all that bad a kid. I was raised up in the faith. So when the gospel came to me, Jesus came to change the bad things in me but the good things he's going to make just a little bit better. It's how we tend to view ourselves. Maybe you, some, some of you are like that too. I'm just being honest in saying that I tended to look at myself in the best possible light, but notice how Paul is putting this. Everything prior to faith in Christ, he's done with it. And it's time to lose self because there was no righteousness to be found there that God would take delight in. The man Saul was extremely devoted to his identity as a Jew and to the practice of living as a very lawful Hebrew. And as he says, there's nobody that could top me in this. I was exceptional in this. 
and like many other Jews of his day, practicing the righteousness of one's own obedience to the law was the means by which he could be identified as the people of God. Eternal life and favor with God, it was presumed to be that which is acquired by self-effort and personal merit. But when Jesus Christ confronted Saul on that Damascus road, when he received salvation by faith in the gospel, all of what Saul thought himself to be came undone. And this is how he puts the matter in verse 7 and 8. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ, more than that, I count, well, some of the things to be lost. Notice, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss again of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. All things. It's funny how little kids or your grandkids or your children say things that are, we say are just precious. They, they think, say things coming out of their mouth that you treasure. And I have a, my youngest grandson, who's barely two, he's learning to, to talk and put things into words. And you know that I have a motorcycle, right? And it lives in my home with me. I put it in the house where it's safe and it can stay dry and clean. I have a truck, it's very dirty, outside and in. It needs a bath and I don't care. But my bike, I care about. And my grandkids see that. And so my grandson, he can't pronounce motorcycle. It's something like goggy goggle. That's the best I can do for you. Every time he sees a motorcycle, papa goggy goggle, papa goggy goggle. All motorcycles are papas. To some degree, I wish it were true, but it's not. <clears throat> Paul is saying all things in his life are now done with. They have no value in the eyes of God in regard to his justification and his sanctification. His identity is fully in Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is where we need to be. This should be our identity. This should be the goal. And you notice in verse 13 and 14, Paul presses upon the church. This is where I'm going. I'm pressing on in this area. I'm not pursuing the goals that the world is pursuing. I'm not trying to be like them. I'm not adopting their ways or even the desires of my own heart because there is no righteousness there. All things are lost to me that I once counted as gain. This is a description of losing self entirely for the sake of Christ. Please understand, this is not merely the sentiment of a hardened Jew that needed to learn a lesson of self-denial. Rather, this is a testimony that every true believer should be willing to make and make it this morning. This is a matter of knowing Jesus Christ in a saving and an eternal way. And the declaration that Paul makes regarding the value of knowing Christ is not knowing more about Christ or knowing what the gospel teaches alone. The knowledge that is so valuable to Paul here that drove him to use such extreme language in this passage is the knowing of Christ intimately by faith in a saving way. To know him in this way as we will see in just a moment, as my Master, my Lord, Messiah, my Savior. By faith, Paul entered into an eternal, eternal and an intimate relationship with the Son of God, and it changes 
all things. It didn't leave some things undone. All things had to be altered and changed. Scholars point out that Paul expresses Jesus, uses the name of Jesus in a very unique way, and it's only found here in Philippians chapter 3. It is this expression, Christ Jesus, my. Notice the personal pronoun, my Lord. Now, in his other writings, we can find the same doctrines, the same principles being taught, but apparently this is the only place that Paul uses this expression, Christ Jesus, my Lord. And therefore, we take note of it because he's making a point. There's an emphasis here. He certainly writes extensively of the lordship of Christ throughout his other epistles. He sees himself as a slave to the will of God. He expresses that again and again, being in service to Christ. He's not shy about declaring that, but emphasizing that Christ Jesus is his Lord here is meant to show that there's a dramatic change that has taken place. In other words, before I was the Lord and Master. I was declaring my own righteousness. But heading towards Damascus, that changed because I met Jesus Christ. He is now Christ Jesus, my Lord. I am no longer the Lord and Master. I am not declaring any longer my own righteousness. All those things that I thought were gain, they are not now lost to me. He has lost self. And he's taking on a totally new identity where once he passionately pursued his own self-identification, his own self-expressiveness, now as a gospel man, he is fully surrendered to Christ Jesus who is his Lord, his master, Jesus Christ. He is the anointed Messiah of God. Jesus, he is my Savior. Jesus, he is my Lord. I submit and surrender to him. Everything of self is lost here. In a world today of Christians who want to express themselves and be what they desire, here is the testimony of what it means to be a gospel man or a gospel woman. It's about the full, the full denial of self. The full denial of one's former self. Paul says that all these things that once defined who he was in his own self-righteous assessments, these things that he once was and he considered a gain to himself. His value, his assurance, they're out lost to him now for the sake of Christ. I'm told that Paul uses financial language here, gain and loss. These are accountant terms, even for back then. So you can almost see Paul in talking verse 4 to verse 6. He's listing those things that once were part of his bank account. These are my holdings. And I valued those things. And now by faith in Christ, he's taken a line and he scratched them out. Once they're in the black, now the red marks against him. And where his gain is found is in Christ. Pastor Kent Hughes writes of Paul's past achievements. He says this, quote, In a blinding moment, they became one great singular loss. All those things that Paul thought were benefits to him. In one blinding moment, speaking of the Damascus experience, in one blinding moment, they became one great singular loss. Jesus Christ became Paul's one and only credit, unquote. 
Not even content that Paul had expressed this adequately to the church. Notice he presses the point to say that he counts all things as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ as his Lord. Verse 7 covered the things that Paul had identified in his Jewish devotion and practice. But verse 8 goes further to say that there is nothing else beyond even those Jewish traditions that he's named, those practices that may likewise stand in the way of fully receiving Christ and his righteousness. Nothing of man has any saving worth to it. Furthermore, nothing in man has any sanctifying worth to it. This is a very thorough coverage of all that men may put before God and say, isn't this nice? Isn't this good? Isn't this exceptional? No religious practice. No religious sacrifice, no financial contributions, no amount of zeal or devotion, no effort towards humanitarian causes. There is no spiritual credentials that could have any value whatsoever in making a contribution toward man's redemption and his sanctification. That's a pretty thorough discussion. It's possible we have breezed over these verses in our past studies and we say, doesn't that sound lovely and wonderful? until we pause for a moment and we understand what the implications of this are. Self must die. Self must be lost. Then Paul resorts to some bathroom talk. Notice, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. If you have a King James Version, it more accurately says dung because that's what that word rubbish in the Greek meant. It all meant all the refuge, human waste, the garbage that you couldn't eat and it was foul and stinks. You threw it out because it's rubbish. That's now what he thinks of his former righteousness. And you look back at verse 5 and 6 and you think, wow, isn't he talking so wonderfully of himself back then? Until you see him use that word rubbish and say it's nothing but dung. It is filth. But I want you to notice that Paul is not saying that to be circumcised according to the law or as the law prescribed was like a poopy thing to do. He understood that to be circumcised was obedience to the law of God. But what Paul and the other Jewish community had failed to realize is that abiding by the law couldn't save you. It couldn't redeem you. Yes, it was an act of obedience to God. But the moment we use that righteousness of our own to secure our salvation, it becomes as refuse, rubbish. That's why Paul looks back at, looks at all of his righteous credentials and he realizes my identity was so foul. They all now must be considered lost that I may gain Christ by faith. He's expressing what it means to take on the identity of Christ. And first and foremost, we must lose that former identity. Not just when we're saved or when we come to faith, but now as believers, is it not all too common for us to look at our own version of righteousness or declare what we think is good? We might even look at the world and see what they're doing and we can put it to our own lives and put a Christian label on it and declare this is righteousness. Surely God is delighted in this. 
This is why that comprehensive declaration is so important to our identity. All things, whether justification, sanctification, all things are lost for the sake of Christ. And that would become very clear to us in verse 9. This self-identity that we must have as believers begins here with losing that former identity and everything associated with it. We hold on to nothing, in other words. And we enter into a brand new relationship with Christ. What exactly do we think it means when it says we're our new creations in Christ? Have we been remodeled? Have we been polished up or rebuilt? No, everything old has passed away. And everything in Christ has been made brand new. This is what Paul is communicating to the Philippians. This is our identity as Christians. If you're a gospel man and woman, understand it begins here. Losing self and losing it completely. And then in verse 9, being found in Christ. And this gets to the heart of what Christian joy looks like. This is what we rejoice in. Not that God has polished up an old version of me and make me look better. Rather, He's laid me to rest. The old man is dead and no more. And I've been raised up a new creation completely in Christ Jesus. This exchange, beginning verse 9, and full denial of self are considered a no loss to Paul. To see the old man done away and to deny self in this way, no loss. I'm not giving up anything. I'm not losing anything here, he says. His useless righteousness, his devotion, his zeal are joyfully counted as loss for the value of what? Knowing Christ. For the value, the exchange of something that was far, far more valuable. Verse 9, continuing on with that word and, and may be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God. Notice where it's come from, from God on the basis of faith. And this is where God's word begins to build in us a brand new identity that is nothing like the former one. And I don't care if you were saved in a Christian home, raised up in the church, or you were saved later on as an adult out of a profligate lifestyle. It's exactly the same. The old self is dead. And Christ has raised us up now in the righteousness that comes to us from God himself on the basis of faith alone. And we notice that the identity is in not regard to what we value any longer. Those things have all been considered rubbish. But wait, God. Weren't there some parts of me worth saving? Aren't there some good parts that might be considered good and righteous? And it takes us back to Romans chapter 3. There's none righteous. No, not one. There's none that seeks after good. The idea that Christians can be what they want to be. They can be trendy. They can be inventive. They can press the boundaries of propriety. Or they can be free to be what they themselves desire to be. All of that is so antithetical to what Paul is teaching here about our Christian identity. At this point, Paul is now moving beyond those things that man may think are worthy to contribute to one's salvation or one's righteousness or one's sanctification. 
And in verse 9, he's now talking about what we become in Christ. Once saved by faith, the believer will be found in Christ, not wearing any longer those things seen precious and righteous in the eyes of man, but those things that are truly righteous and come from God above. Obedience to Christ, conformity to Christ, the pleasure of Christ. The point here is that we no longer wear our own clothes. We're wearing the righteousness of Christ. What pleases Him? Are we obeying Him? Are we conforming our image to Christ? Because that is now our identity. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. This is really describing what Paul is writing here in Philippians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He, God, made Him Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. What do they call that? Imputation. The righteousness of God has been imputed to us. And I believe this is what the psalmist had in mind when he wrote those very well-known words out of Psalm 73 and verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. This should be the passion, the cry of the believer this morning. Besides you, Christ, there's nothing here on this earth that captures the desires of my heart. What Paul is declaring is that what thrilled him about himself is that he had no longer had any value in self. His value was in knowing Christ. And this is where the righteousness of God has been imputed to him by faith. Paul and every other believer now wear the righteousness that is from God on the basis of faith in the gospel. And when the Christian of our day comes to understand the value of knowing Christ, why would we ever long to wear what we used to wear? Why would we ever long to wear what we see the world putting on today and calling good and wonderful? Christians are to be found wearing what God declares as righteous, and this is only understood through gospel faith. When it comes to Christian living, being found in the righteousness of Christ is where true gospel joy will be found. On your note sheet, I've just put a, a, a short segment from William Hendrickson's commentary as he writes of this imputed righteousness that Paul is teaching about. Notice the characteristics that he identifies right out of the text, Philippians chapter 3. This righteousness that now identifies who I am as a gospel man or a gospel woman. It is a Christ. It belongs to Christ. Number two, it's not merited by works performed by man. Number three, it is appropriated by faith. It's not something I practice. It's not talking about my zeal or my heritage as a Hebrew. It is appropriated only by faith and it comes from God. This imputed righteousness is what He has brought into our life. And notice that fifth quality. The result, what it produces. It results or produces in us a striving after spiritual what? Perfection. All too often, you and I are content with spiritual improvement. Paul is not. Spiritual perfection, you see it in verse 13 and 14. I'm reaching for something other than this life has to offer. 
The point that verse 9 makes in this discussion is that because of our gospel faith, we are now found wearing the righteousness of Christ, no longer wearing the faulty righteousness that we once wore, that we see others wearing. No longer the standard, the ethics, the morality of society. Certainly not what they approve of as good. It's only Christ. Like Paul, we have a new identity, and that identity is Christ. And it takes us on a heavenly course. This brings us to verse 10 and 11. And I've referred to this as being alive in the full. Notice twice resurrection is on the mind of the Apostle Paul. Fully alive in Christ. Back up with me just to Ephesians 2. This is not on your note sheet. But notice the wording of Ephesians 2 here. First three verses of Ephesians 2, Paul describes how we were before Christ, dead in our trespasses and sin. Verse 4 then, But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we are dead in our transgressions, made us what? Alive together with Christ. So whatever we are as living specimens should look like Christ as the living one made alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ. So therefore, picture yourself right now seated next to Messiah Jesus. How is He adorned? What is He wearing? And I've been made alive with Him. So I ask the question, what am I wearing? How am I dressed? How do I look? Do I act like the world, talk like the world, desire the things of the world? Is that what I look like seated next to the Son of God? Paul is saying, heaven forbid. Not at all. Look back at our text in verse 10 and 11. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, verse 11, in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Resurrection life is on Paul's mind here. And he wants to describe for the church in Philippi the fullness of that life. As Hendrickson wrote, the righteousness from God that results in striving after spiritual perfection in Christ. And this is where we're talking about sanctification. Don't be misled here. We're talking about justification and sanctification. And Paul very much has this sanctification on mind. It's the result of gospel faith that has a striving after, reaching after the prize because we value Christ, the knowledge of Christ. And we're taking on this identity, new purpose in life. And in this we're found pressing toward a goal, the prize being the perfection of Christ himself and our full glorification. That should be our vision Again, think of yourself seated by Christ. What do you look like? What are you going after? What's your identity? We know that in this life, we do not reach that perfect glorification in Christ. It's a progressive glory. But we're now being found reaching for that climax of perfection and glory in eternity. Paul valued knowing Christ more than anything. Look back at verse 8. The value of knowing Christ. This is where I get my identity from. But he's not content there. By verse 10, he confesses, I want to know him more. I value 
knowing Christ intimately as my, as my Messiah, my Savior, my Lord. But verse 10, I must know him more. Faith in Christ initiates a desire in knowing him as Lord and Savior, but that desire for Christ is meant to grow, and with it, our desire to be like Christ, our desire for righteousness. As one scholar put it, in the first matter, Christ's righteousness is imputed by faith. But here in verse 10 and 11, it is then a matter of Christ's righteousness imparted by the Spirit. The moment we are justified and come to faith in Christ, His righteousness is imputed to us by faith. But beginning that moment of justification by faith, God's righteousness is then imparted by the Spirit. And this is where the idea of Christians dabbling in things of the world or holding on to their own fleshly desires becomes somewhat troubling about their understanding of gospel faith. What do you think it is the gospel intends to do to us? The Judaizers want to have all the benefits of the cross. They like the idea of eternity, forgiveness of sins, Jesus Messiah. Yes, we'll call ourselves Christian. But they also wanted to hold on to their own values and their own righteousness. And they presumed that God would be delighted with their version of the gospel and that He would accept them on the basis of their idea of goodness and righteousness. It's not all that far removed from the story that Christ, or the interaction that Christ had with the rich young ruler who claimed he had kept all the laws. Exceptional young man that he was. And Jesus said, there's one thing you lack. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And you remember the story. The rich young ruler went away grieved and sorrowing because he loved his riches more than he loved Christ. He didn't really want the identity of Christ. He wanted his own righteousness. He wanted eternity. He wanted the Christian message to some degree. Didn't really want the identity of Christ, though. The text before shows us the way of joyful Christian living. This is where our joy is found. So this is what we need to learn. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. The implications of this verse in speaking of conformity to the death of Christ and be part of the resurrection leads me to suggest Paul envisions being made fully alive in Christ. This is a result of the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. As one author put it, this means we are entirely wrapped up in Christ, fully immersed in Christ. This involves several thoughts on Paul's mind. Number one, to know him, verse 10. This is not so much the mere collecting of facts about Christ Jesus as necessary as mental knowledge is, but it is also a heart that knows Christ more fully. And this speaks of our will. It speaks of our passion. It speaks of our desires and our motives. Verse 13 and 14 give us a sense of that in Paul. David is said to, have a, to be a man after God's own heart. And this is what Paul is saying of his knowing Christ. He has a growing heart after the Lord I want to know him more, to more deeply know Christ. In verse 8, he knows him personally. 
as the promised Messiah of God. Now Paul adds to that. I must know him more, more intimately. I want my will, my passions, my desires to be formed by him and his righteousness. Remember, we've already set aside self. We've lost self. Now this is putting on Christ. Secondly, to know his power. And Paul refers here to resurrection power, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of religious leaders out there that have authority, that speak well, use words well, can be very convincing, are very enticing leaders. But a Savior who claims to die for the sins of His people is buried and then actually rises from the dead? Now that is power that Paul wants. I want to know that power. The power of the resurrection of Christ. It's a power that changes lives. It's a power that gives eternal life. It forgives sins. To live in resurrection power would be a dynamic display of power. Our power over sin. Resisting the allurements of temptation. It would experience credible growth in sanctification. It would demonstrate not only the power to live and walk in righteousness of Christ. But also the desire to walk. And truth would be evident. Spiritual laziness would be gone. We would hunger to know more of the truth found in God's word. Since the resurrection of Christ was a demonstration of divine love, to enjoy that resurrection power would mean such a strong love for Christ. Such a strong, growing love for the family of Christ. His church. A readiness and a desire to forgive as Christ forgave based on the resurrection power of himself. We would more easily resist the desire for gossip and critical words that hurt others. There would be a readiness to lift others up who had fallen, repented, and who also wanted to live in that resurrection power. This is a pretty comprehensive statement. I want to know that power in the resurrection of Christ, Paul says. And if resurrection power is the dynamic power of God to make the dead come to life, imagine all that such power could do in making us more fully alive in Christ. And three, he speaks of the fellowship of suffering. Here's an odd declaration, right? He's almost saying, give me more suffering. I long to fellowship That word fellowship has common identity with Christ. Common participation with Christ. Give me more of Him and His suffering. That's what I want. We generally avoid suffering. And when we get into suffering, we're praying that God get us out of it. Paul is almost saying, put me into it. Yet I believe that what Paul understands here is that to be more like Christ to serve His purposes more fully, and to be more impassioned to live for Christ's glory is going to demand sacrifice and hardship. In his mind, it would be an honor to suffer for the glory of Christ. There is a sense in which Paul is saying here that because of his greater passion for Christ and to be like Christ, bring it on. Give me more of this. Bring on the sacrifice, the trials, because I intend to know Christ more. And the more we are like Christ, the more offensive we will be to the world around us and the more the world will find us contrary to the things that they value and the things that they admire and the things that they declare as righteous. Such suffering would indicate the Christ in us is becoming more visible to the world around us. 
Christians today strive to be like the world so that they can be accepted by the world. Paul is going the exact opposite direction. I want to be like Christ because as I do, the world isn't going to like me and suffering will come. There's also the truth in this declaration that suffering is the means by which our faith is strengthened. Peter writes of this in his first epistle, but Paul also understood this. Even at the end of his letter where he writes of his own suffering and his own needs, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul commends the church for their faith and love, which was strengthened by suffering and affliction, and that they endured for Christ. Sharing in the suffering of Christ strengthens our faith in Christ. So Paul wasn't afraid to suffer more because he knew he would grow more and would bring him further into the likeness of Christ who is now his identity. But I think there's another sense in which Paul may desire the sufferings of Christ and it may be a reflection on the cross itself because as we look at the Savior dying on the cross, was he not suffering for our sins? And can you not see a hint here that Paul is saying to God, saying to the Philippian church, I want to find no contentment in my sin. Those things that I lust for, that those things I desire, I don't want to find any joy there. As Christ suffered for my sin, I want to feel that pain so that I turn from it and I never return. It is to pray, Lord, let me never be satisfied in my own righteousness, my own sin, let me feel the pain of it that I might turn from it fully and completely. I believe this is strongly connected, this idea of resurrection power and knowing it, strongly connected with the next expression of Paul's desire for his new identity in Christ. That is to be conformed to his death. <clears throat> conformed to Christ's death. Romans 6 teaches us a great deal about dying with Christ and being raised up with Him in the newness of life. And that text explains, just as Christ died bearing our sins, so you and I die to the sinfulness of our own desires. Just as Christ died for our sins and was raised up through the glory of the Father, so you and I are to be raised up to walk in newness of life. This is what Romans 6 teaches. And in this way, we walk in the likeness of the resurrection of Christ. Romans 6, verse 3 to 6. This should be the hallmark of the Christian experience. That we've died to sin. We've died to its passions. And we're raised up in the newness of life to sin no longer. And this leads us naturally to where Paul goes in verse 11. That final resurrection. First, he spoke of the resurrection power in Christ himself. But notice where Paul's vision is. Notice where he's going. He's considering the final resurrection in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's the final resurrection. Paul doesn't envision his salvation totally completed and glorified until that promise is fulfilled. And Paul writes much of that day that is coming when even our bodies will be raised out of the grave glorified and joined with our spirit that has been taken to be with Christ. And Paul has already said in chapter 1, verse 21, that to be with Christ is the gain of Christians. But it's not the end of it. 
Our dead bodies will be raised up on the day of our resurrection and we will be fully glorified in Christ. No longer will there be a struggle with selfishness and sin. Our recreation as image bearers of God will be fully restored and we're going to spend eternity with Christ and together with the Father and with His redeemed people. Verse 11 again is one of those purpose kind of clauses in order that. Paul is actually saying, if somehow... I attain. He's not questioning that this is going to happen. He's declaring that because of faith, this is going to happen. It tells us in the midst of all of this that was going on in life for Paul, he had his eyes fixed on eternity. And this will lead us clearly to that stated goal in life from verse 14. There are far too many of us that have become too fixed on the things of this life. For some, it's the building of a career. Others, devoting themselves to financial success, financial security. Others are smitten with the lifestyles of society, the trends of the day. Some are lured by the indulgences of fallen culture. Far too many are driven to please self and are seeking again their own identity. This passage, Philippians 3, exhorts every believer to be done with self and to be found in Christ, our own righteousness is cast aside, and cast aside is worthless, and we're found in Christ and in his righteousness by faith. It shows so clearly that pursuits and passions of this world are contrary to the gospel. And when we count all things as loss for the sake of Christ, we find that which is valuable, far more valuable than the things of this world, the things of our own heart, or the righteousness of men. Our text encourages the believer to pursue the fullness of life found only in Christ. It means growing in our knowledge of Christ, in our heart for Christ. It means being strengthened by the Spirit of God, the power of His resurrection, being willing to suffer with Christ, being conformed to His death as we daily die to sin and our own selfish desires. It means keeping our eyes fixed on our full restoration in Christ. When we're joined with Him in glory, raised up in spirit and in body to worship Him and fellowship with Him forever. It is certain that each of us here today who are found in Christ by faith in some measure have wrestled with these things. And no doubt each one of us in our journey with Christ are at a different position. But I would contend we're all struggling with these things in some measure. We see the world around us and sometimes we long for those things. The things that pop up in the, the, the desires of our own heart we know are not Christ. And we desire those things as well. We seek a righteousness all too often that is our own, living life on our own terms, by our own values, in pursuit of goals that are not right in the eyes of Christ. This is a passage that puts us back on track. So rather than feeling burdened by what Paul is saying, he rejoice. In what he's saying. He's teaching us how to reach for the prize. To value Christ. And to understand your true identity in Christ. Too many of us are looking at Paul's words and saying, Oh, too extreme. This is too radical. And it is radical. No doubt. Many in the younger generation want to be different. They want to be radical in their own way. But not necessarily in this way. Some of the older generation may think that such a devotion to Christ is unreachable, that perhaps Paul was a rare exception and I can't possibly be like that. 
Yet what is described here is really the definition of the gospel and the radical transformation that it makes upon sinners. Every true believer is found in Christ not having a righteousness of their own, but that which is from God and is of faith in Christ. It's then a matter of learning and knowing this more fully and living in that reality. Casting aside those things like Paul and said, saying of those things, they're of no value any longer. I don't want them. I don't need them. Learn to value Christ. Learn to know him in this way. This is the value of this text. It's the beauty of this passage. It's putting us back on track to where we belong with Jesus Christ. I just want to close with three simple statements. They're not going to even be on the board because they're just one word fill in, so it's easy this morning. Beginning with Christian contentment. Christian contentment. We've been talking about joy and rejoicing. Paul is still on that subject. Christian contentment is found in this, that I may know him, Christ. Verse 10 and 11 is the source of our gospel joy. But what has led up to these verses is first the loss of self, self-righteousness. For many Christians, it seems that joy is found in embracing the gospel by faith, knowing that they're bound for heaven, and then pursuing an identity other than is described here. Taking on some of the likeness of the world, some of the pleasures of my own distorted heart view. That's not where joy is found. Compromise will never bring joy. Christ alone, that's where our contentment is. So we're going to continue to focus on that theme throughout our study of this letter. Joy, Christian contentment is found in this, that I may know him, Christ. Second, Christian unity is also found in this, that we may know him, Christ. And this is, again, not to suggest that you and I won't have some differences. But I think what is characteristic of the church in America today seems to be division. Well, they have this music, and I like this music over here, and they do this, and I do this. And I can't quite possibly fellowship in Summit Park because they're a little too weird and conservative here, or whatever. Yet as 1 Corinthians 11 reminds us, factions and divisions must exist where some in the faith are not found approved. In other words, some Christians... In Corinth, we're not walking in the righteousness of Christ. And where that occurs, division will also occur. Where we all share the same identity in Christ, this is where we find our unity and fellowship. If we understand that here at Summit Park, every true believer that understands that should find compatibility with what we are here. Because our identity is not self not self-interest, not my own personal taste. It is Christ. He's the one that makes us united. He's the common denominator. And number three, Christian identity. Christian identity is found in this, that I may know him. That's been the theme of what I've been sharing this morning. G. Walter Hansen writes, knowledge of Christ Jesus as my Lord includes the submission of every thought and every act. Every thought and every act submitted to Christ. This is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5 and 6. We are destroying speculations. Every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. 
And we're ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Every thought captive for the obedience of Jesus Christ because we're taking on his identity. When a parent speaks the word of God's truth to their son or daughter, or a fellow believer shares the truth of God's word with another, and their response is indifference, or they simply ignore the instruction, we can be sure that self-will has set itself up against the righteousness of Christ. With every one of us, there will be a battle between my will and thy will be done. With every one of us, to be found in Christ is to submit every act and thought to the obedience of his will. May Christ find us there, and may we find our identity with him. Father, I thank you for the testimony of the Apostle Paul, how faithfully and passionately you had brought him to believe in these things and to understand these things, things that we need to know this morning ourselves. I thank you that we are found in Christ if we're believers here. But Father, we need to know you more fully. We need to know your Son more deeply, the power of his resurrection. We need to understand what it means to die to the old man of sin and to put on the wardrobe of Christ's righteousness and to lose ourselves completely in him. We need to know these things more fully. And like Paul, we are on this progressive journey reaching for that prize, that goal. Father, stir this desire within us that we see in the apostle. Fill us with the value of Christ so that all the other pleasures and interests of the world are nothing but rubbish to us any longer. And we want only his righteousness. Father, we need these things today. Grow us in this. Give us this desire and this passion and zeal. We pray in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen.